Well, good morning. Um, I want to start by saying just how awesome it was to see so many of you at Kids Fest yesterday and connect with so many different people there. And um, especially for those of you who were at Kids Fest and came up and said that you have been watching online and um, and just wanted to be able to meet in person. Um, thank you so much for doing that and for being with us. And it's just awesome to be part of a church that wants to serve the community and um, ask nothing in return. So thank you for that. Um, today, <clears throat> Paul starts with a bold statement. And in this bold statement is a profound insight. Paul says, in addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. Now, ordinarily, when I've read this text, I've kind of skipped over that first verse and thought that it was kind of disconnected from what follows, and I've not really understood how it fit. But the more that I've thought about this verse, the more that I realize how bold of a statement Paul is making and how profound of an insight he's drawing out. Think about what he's saying here. He says, rejoice in the Lord. The word rejoice means to cherish something, to enjoy something, to get pleasure from something. And he says, you should cherish the Lord. And who is the Lord? Well, we learned a couple weeks ago in Philippians 2, verse 11, Jesus Christ is Lord. So he says, by saying rejoice in the Lord, he's saying cherish Jesus. Cherish Jesus. And then he says, and for me to say this again to you, it's not a big deal to me, but it's a safeguard for you. It's a safeguard for you. Or if you will do this thing, if you will cherish Jesus, it will save your life. It will preserve your life. It will prolong your life. To cherish Jesus will save your life. That's the bold statement. Not everybody believes that. So that's why it's bold. But in that statement is also a profound insight into just life. And here's the insight. That you should cherish what can save your life. You should cherish what can save your life. Now, that's true on a physical level. Um, If you're a parent of... Um, a child who has some kind of allergy, some kind of life-threatening allergy, you cherish the EpiPen. You don't have to wonder where the EpiPen is because you should cherish what will save your life. This is maybe true of a seatbelt, you know? A seatbelt can save your life in a car accident, so cherish the seatbelt. This is true of a fireproof safe. You know, if your house is gonna burn down, well, at least your passports and tax documents will be protected. Um, So you should cherish the safe, fireproof safe in your house. Physically, cherish the things that can save your life. But that's not what Paul's talking about here. Paul is making a profound insight about something spiritual. He's saying that 
that you should cherish what can save your soul. Cherish what can save your soul. Now in Paul's day, there was a group of religious teachers who were teaching that the way that you could be accepted by God, the way that you could save your soul was by becoming Jewish. You needed to be circumcised because that's what God commanded in the Old Testament for his people. So you need to be circumcised, become Jewish, and you need to keep the Hebrew law or what we call the Old Testament. And if you do this, you'll save your life. And so these religious teachers cherished circumcision. They cherished adherence to the law. Now on the surface, that seems perfectly irrelevant to us today because nobody's teaching that anymore. I mean, maybe somebody is, but like, I don't, it's not like a, a, a common problem in the church or in your life that people are just knocking on your door. Hey, have you been circumcised? They just want to check in. In fact, when we hear circumcision, I feel bad for the scripture reader. I'm like, ah, oh, man, rough week to get drawn, you know, to have to get up and read about that. Because for us, it just seems like this teaching that you got to be circumcised to be acceptable, you got to be circumcised to save your soul, like we've just moved past that. That's archaic. But here's what's interesting. Underneath this belief about circumcision is something deeper. Underneath this belief is this, that in order to save your soul, you need to make yourself acceptable. In order to save your soul, you need to make yourself worth something. And the word for this thing that you need to save your soul, this thing that makes you acceptable and worth something, in the New Testament, that word is the word righteousness. Righteousness. Now, when we hear the word righteousness or righteous, we think it just, we, we typically kind of think like that's being a good person, just keeping rules, being moral. That's what we think righteousness is. In the New Testament, righteousness is bigger than that. Being righteous means being acceptable, receiving a successful verdict, being officially approved of, having a stamp of approval. Righteousness is a person's safeguard. Righteousness is what you depend on to save your soul. So for these Jewish leaders, these Jewish teachers, they were saying that your righteousness, the thing that will make you acceptable, the thing that will, that will give you a stamp of approval, in order for you to be righteous, just be circumcised. The way that that plays out today is different. It's not circumcision, but the belief underneath that is the same. It's that if you're going to be acceptable, you've got to perform. Do something. If you are going to be righteous, 
If you are going to save your soul, if you are going to find meaning in life, if you are going to to be acceptable, to be worth something, it's up to you. Perform. Your righteousness, your performance, your resume is what saves your soul. Isn't that the way that the world operates? I mean, think just for a minute about uh, college. How do people get accepted into college? A resume, right? I mean, you've got to have a GPA, SAT, ACT. You've got to have some extracurricular activities. You've got to be good at something. You've got to be able to carry on somewhat of a conversation, especially if you're going to get into, like, you know, a nice school. You've got to build your resume if you're going to get in. This is one of the most stressful things for students, according to a survey in 2021. Because of COVID, I guess more students are applying to more schools because they haven't had a chance to visit. And so it's stressful because acceptance rates are dropping. And so what do you need to do? If you're going to be accepted, you've got to make your resume better. And this isn't just true for college, though, is it? It's true for jobs. If you're going to get your job... Here's the argument that I'm going to put forward. It's in the form of a resume for why I should be accepted in your eyes. But this isn't just true about college and jobs. This is true in so many different ways. That the way that the door will be opened to you, the way that you can experience acceptance is by your performance, Show us why you belong. Do you remember when you entered into a new environment, whether that was school, like a cafeteria, or a new work environment, or maybe you've moved to the area and you're checking out a church, or maybe you've just moved to an area and you're, you're getting to know people, and while you're trying to make friendships, you ask yourself questions like, what should I wear? Why? Because that's the way the world works. For people to open the door to you, you've, you've got to have something. You've got to put your best foot forward. So what are you going to wear for this? What are you going to talk about? Could you prepare something funny ahead of time? The way that friendships are opened to you, the way that you become acceptable and worth something as a friend is through some kind of performance. This is true romantically. Maybe you find yourself in a position where you're dating right now and you've got an online app and you're trying to, you're basically building a resume on there and you're trying to put your best foot forward. Maybe this is the way you feel about your parents. In order for your dad or your mom to finally get off your back and just say, I'm proud of you, what are you doing? What could you do to earn that? Maybe this is the way you feel about your kids, one of your kids, maybe. Maybe you constantly feel judged by this kid and you just want to be accepted by them. You just want for them to know that you love them and that you do anything for them. But it feels like you're the constant butt of their jokes. It feels like you're constantly left out. 
And so you're racking your brain trying to figure out what could I do to be acceptable? How could I prove my righteousness in their eyes? And this isn't just true about the world and it's not just true about what we do to try and get acceptance from others. It's also true about how we try to find acceptance ourselves. How could I look myself in the mirror and and like what I see? I gotta do something different than I'm doing now. And depending on your personality, depending on how you're wired, depending on all kinds of circumstances, the way that righteousness and your quest for righteousness, being approved of by yourself, the way that plays out will be different. Um, I was listening to a pastor this week and the way he articulated this just resonated with me because it's like he put words to something that I've been feeling and I haven't known how to, how to express. And he said that, um, that he noticed in his marriage, that he and his wife noticed that when things were going tough at church, that he would just, he would be anxious, he would be more worried, he would lose sleep, he would be restless. But his wife would seem like she had such great faith. And she would say, just, hey, you know the Lord is with you. You know God's gonna work this out. We were stressed about this last time, but God got us through it. And it seemed in those moments when there was something stressful going on at the church that, that he was weak and maybe had low you know, self-esteem or didn't have thick skin, but his wife, man, she had such great faith. But then they noticed that in a different set of circumstances with their children, if something was going on with one of their kids, if they were misbehaving or, you know, proving themselves to grow up to be some kind of delinquent, you know, or something, um, that she would lose sleep. And she just, she would get anxious and her life would feel unstable. And it would seem like, he was someone with great faith because he would say, babe, you know that the Lord is with him, their son. You know that the Lord is in control. Trust him. And what they came to realize is that it wasn't that one of them had great faith and one of them was super weak in the faith. It's that they had different places that they were trying to find their righteousness. For him, if things were going poorly at church, it made him feel like I'm a failure of a pastor. And he derived such worth. It felt to him like it was on his spiritual resume that he needs to be a good pastor, a good leader. And so if, if things aren't going well, then, oh, then who am I? How can I look myself in the mirror? How can I live with myself? How could I accept myself? But for the wife, yeah, she loved the church. She hoped the church thrives, hoped the church is healthy. But that wasn't where she was getting her righteousness. She felt like on her spiritual resume was being a good mom, helping these kids turn out. And so when something was going on with one of the kids, it would wreck her world because that's where she was getting her righteousness. And in either case, 
Your righteousness is based on something that you must do. It's based on something you need to perform in order to receive. And that is an exhausting and miserable way to live. All of life is built on this building of a resume to get in. We all have different sets of these things, but fundamentally, all of us are seeking to earn our righteousness. All of us have a resume, a righteousness by which we seek to face the world, ourselves, and God. And Paul says that for those who are teaching you to earn righteousness by something that you do, for those who are teaching you to pay attention to your performance so that you can work hard enough, so that you can perform well enough to be accepted. He says, watch out for those people. Look at verse two. He says, watch out for the dogs. Watch out for the evil workers. Watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. Now, he's being funny here and kind of sarcastic And he's making fun of these Jewish teachers. Because one of the things that the Jewish teachers would say is that people who were not Jewish were dogs. So Paul now is calling them dogs. Watch out for the dogs. These Jewish teachers thought that they were doing the works of righteousness by circumcising everyone and trying to live up to the Old Testament law. And Paul calls them, rather than righteous workers, evil workers. And these people who were trying to circumcise everyone... He says, rather than actually circumcise anyone, they're actually just mutilating the flesh. And in his language, the word circumcise and mutilate rhyme. And so he says, you think that you're doing circumcision, but really you're just doing mutilation. But it sounds better in his language. (laughs) It would be like, uh, this is a terrible reference uh, probably, but um, chlorophyll, More like borophil, right? Um, That's kind of what he's saying here. And so he's making fun of these workers, these teachers. But again, these kind of teachers, they're not teaching the same thing today. But absolutely there are teachers who are teaching today that salvation is through your performance, that righteousness comes through what you do. Think about just a few of these um, teachings today. There's what I'm gonna call salvation by technology. Are you feeling lonely? Technology can save you. Are you fearing death? Technology can save you. Um, Last month, it was reported that Jeff Bezos, who I guess is worth like $200 billion or something, it's a lot, it's hard for me to even really know what that means. Um, But he's investing in immortality, funding a new company to rejuvenate an aging body. And this company is gonna be different because these researchers are paying like a million dollars to the researchers and they are doing these incredible things. And technology 
can actually be the solution to an aging body. Technology can actually be the thing that will beat death. And this is not new. The Cryonics Institute has been doing this forever. I mean, Walt Disney, there's rumors, you know, that he was trying to figure out how to freeze himself and someday return and, you know. Technology can save you. Technology is offering salvation, so we better work hard and band together to discover these new technological achievements. There's salvation by therapy. Your problems really all exist because of the environment that you have found yourself in. You were raised in this dysfunctional family. There's all of these things going on out there and, and the righteousness you need. If you are going to really be able to face yourself is you need to deep dive in here and figure out who you really are so that you can come back out, be yourself no matter what anyone else says, cast off all external factors that may try to contain your life and be yourself. Salvation by therapy. My wife's a therapist, so obviously I'm being a little bit tongue-in-cheek in my description of that. Salvation by politics. Are you worried about the future? Are you consumed by problems? Put your hope in this candidate. This candidate will end CRT. This candidate will end the climate. Uh, What's the word for that? Yeah, thank you. You got it. The climate crisis will be solved. CRT will be abolished. If If you will band together with this political candidate, then... There's salvation, salvation by investment. If you are hearing this, you're still on the front end. You're still an early adopter if you're hearing this. But Bitcoin is the way of the future. <laughs> What's a Bitcoin? Just Google, man. Just Google. Now, that could be true. Bitcoin could be the way of the future. In fact, in 2018, a good friend of mine tried to convince me to buy several Bitcoins. They were only like $2,000 a piece at that time. And now they're worth like 58 or that was a couple weeks ago, the last I looked. So, I mean, man, opportunity missed on my part. But salvation by investment, I'm kind of poking fun at that, but, but that's a real thing. Like if you don't do this thing, you're gonna be left behind. I mean, do you realize that? Okay, you've got all this money and savings, but did you know that the dollar is going to be abolished and the only hope for you is salvation by self-help, 12 tips to a better life. Just sit and experience zen. The church is even plagued by this way of thinking. Um, There are some churches that teach that righteousness Being acceptable to God is about reading your Bible, praying, coming to church, giving to church, joining a group. That's what it means to be righteous. There are other churches that teach that righteousness, being acceptable in God's eyes, is about standing up for the oppressed, fighting against racism, giving to the poor, fighting for the rights of immigrants. All of these things are good things. 
None of them can save you. None of them can make you righteous. None of them can be a safeguard for your soul. So watch out, Paul says, for anyone who teaches a form of salvation by your own righteousness. Why? Why should you watch out for those kinds of teachings? What's the big deal? Those things cannot save you. Your performance, no matter how great, will never be enough to save you. Paul says, verse three, for we are the circumcision. What is he saying? The circumcision here stands for the group of people that God has placed his seal of approval on. The group of people that God has made righteous. The group of people that God has says, yep, you can belong with me. You can be in. You get to be in my kingdom. You get to experience my blessing. He says, those people, that's us. Who? Who gets to be in that group? He says, we, three things, the ones who worship by the spirit of God. The ones who worship by the spirit of God. What does that mean? Well, we don't have time to talk about it much today, but Galatians chapter three, verse one. Uh, verse two, I only want to learn this from you. Did you receive the spirit by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish? After beginning by the spirit, are you now finishing by the flesh? Did you experience so much for nothing if in fact it was for nothing? So then, does God give you the spirit and work miracles among you by your doing the works of the law or is it by believing what you heard? Just like Abraham who believed God and it was credited to him for righteousness. He's saying, the people who are the true circumcision the people who God has placed his stamp of approval on are those who have received the Holy Spirit. And how do you receive the Spirit? Is it by reading your Bible? No. Is it by fasting? No. Is it by standing up to injustice? No. You receive the Spirit by faith in the gospel. So we worship by the Spirit of God. We boast in Christ Jesus. And we put no confidence in the flesh. That's who God has placed his seal of approval on. In verse four. Although, I just want you guys to know, Paul says, I have reasons for confidence in the flesh. All right, so... The way that God accepts you is not based on the flesh. It's not based on your performance. It's not based on what you can do to earn his love. But if he did accept people that way, Paul says, I just want you to know, I would be the best, all right? I would be at the front of the line, all right? If anyone else thinks he has reason, he has grounds for confidence in the flesh, I have got more, he says. And now he's gonna give us his resume. He says, I was circumcised on the eighth day. In other words, my parents 
weren't lazy bums who were like, yeah, we'll get to it someday, buddy. But they actually took me when they were supposed to, when the law said to go on the eighth day. And he says, I'm actually from the nation of Israel. I didn't just convert to Judaism. I'm actually born a Jew. I can trace my lineage. He says, I'm of the tribe of Benjamin. Demonstrating again, I can trace my lineage back. And the tribe of Benjamin is one of only two tribes that actually stuck with the house of David. And the tribe of Benjamin is the the tribe that would actually lead people out into battle. And the tribe of Benjamin actually was faithful to God, so they preserved their line. Most of the tribes just disappeared. You couldn't trace it because they intermarried and they did all kinds of stuff. And Paul's saying, look, I can actually trace it back. He says, I'm a Hebrew born of Hebrews, meaning I grew up in a home where we actually spoke the Hebrew language. I'm not a Hellenistic Jew. I'm not, you know, in our house, we weren't so like secularized by Greek culture that I, you know, understood what was on television and stuff. We were like, man, we only spoke Hebrew. We only knew about the stuff that was in the Bible. Regarding the law, You wanna know how diligent I was about the law? I was a Pharisee, he says. Now, a Pharisee for us, we hear that and we think, you know, legalistic rule follower. In in the first century, though, it's not how they were thought of. They were thought of elite, respected experts, super smart. Regarding zeal, You wanna know how zealous I was for the faith? I was persecuting the church, he says. Regarding the righteousness that is in the law, I was blameless, he says. If he was writing this today, he would say, I have degrees from the Ivy League. I'm on the New York Times bestsellers list. I've got a medal of honor. I've got a seat on the Supreme Court. I'm a partner at the company. I'm a top salesman award winner multiple years in a row. I've got a huge retirement savings and I've got a beautiful wife and a great husband. That's what he would say. Yeah, (laughs) it is a lot. He was proud. He was proud. But everything that was a gain to him Everything that was a gain to me, he says, I have considered to be a loss. Why? Because of Christ. More than that, I also consider. So notice verse seven, past tense. I have considered to be a loss. So at one point in the past, he decided this stuff's not worth as much anymore because of Christ. And now, even more than that, he says, even more than this was just a one-time decision in the past, more than that, I also, present tense, consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. The stars were beautiful at night. And we were looking up and we were like, man, that's a big one. Oh, look how pretty that is. Wow. Man, and he says, that's like what my resume was. 
I had a bunch of gold stars all over the resume. But when the sun comes out, you don't see that stuff anymore. That stuff dims. That stuff goes away. And he says, that's how Jesus is. He has a surpassing value. When the sun comes out, you don't care about the gold stars anymore. Something greater is here, he says. Because of him, Because of Jesus, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung, as poop, as manure, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him. not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. What makes Jesus so valuable? In Jesus, there is a righteousness that's available apart from your performance. In Jesus, there is the promise of eternal acceptance that is not received through what you must do to prove yourself, that is not received through your working hard to earn it, but there is eternal acceptance that is available for free as a gift that can be received by Faith. He says, I want to be found in him. What does that mean? He's referring to the future judgment. On the day of judgment, when God brings everything to completion and says, okay, that's enough. When everyone is called to account and must stand and give their resume, Paul says on that day, I don't want to be found standing by myself. I don't want to be found in my resume. And I don't want to be found trusting in technology, trusting in financial investments. I want to be found in him. There is a day coming when God will judge the world and every single person will give an account And on that day, your righteousness, no matter how great, no matter how great of a business you've built, no matter how much money you've accumulated, no matter how great of a mom you've been, no matter how many awesome cookies you've baked, no matter how many insurance policies that you've distributed, no matter how many students you've trained up in the classroom, 
there will be a day when you will give an account and none of those stars will shine brightly enough. But there is a righteousness that is available apart from your performance. And it is found in Jesus. It can be received by faith. In order to receive it, though, like Paul said, it's going to cause you to have to lose something. Being a Christian is not an add-on. It's a complete reorientation. It's cherishing something new. And what will feel like a loss at first, you will come to see. It really wasn't a loss. <laughs> There's really only something to be gained in Jesus. We'll look at this verse next week in more detail, but he says, verse 10, my goal is to know him, that's Jesus, to know him personally and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death, assuming that I will somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Here's the gospel. The gospel is the message that Jesus, when he looked at his resume, he said, I'm not gonna consider all of this stuff as something to be grasped for my own advantage. Instead, I'm going to empty myself and I'm gonna become a human, a servant. And I'm gonna go to the cross and I'm gonna die in the place of sinners. And I'm gonna be raised from the dead to offer them new life. And Paul says, I want to know that Jesus. Not the Jesus who can help me grow my business. Not the Jesus who can help me get the girl. Not the Jesus who, if we focus hard enough, that we'll get into the college. I wanna know the Jesus who gave up the resume for something greater. And that's what it means to be a Christian. It means that you begin to stop evaluating your worth and your acceptance based on something you can do, but instead you start to find your acceptance and your significance, your righteousness from something that Christ did. God's love for you is not based on the events of your life. God's love for you is based on the events of Jesus' life. Paul learned to cherish what can actually save his life. What I think is interesting here is for Paul to think about receiving Jesus. He didn't just have to repent of his sin. 
That is, he didn't just have to leave his sin behind, his moral failures behind. But he also had to leave his dependence on his moral excellencies behind. And so when you go to approach God, a test for whether or not you are really cherishing the gospel, whether or not you really get it, is whether or not when you approach him, you are not coming based on what you've done, good or bad. If you've sinned, does it take you a while to warm back up to God? Then cherish, believe the gospel. Martin Luther said, nothing so quickly kills pride than overeating, oversleeping, and overdrinking. Now, that's not a model to live by. But his point is that the gospel frees you. It frees you. But not to live on your own, but to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. So here's what I want to close with today. What are you trusting to save your soul? What are you trusting to save your soul? The next time that you're disappointed or you're cast down, what would it look like for you to pray, God, help me remember the gospel? Rather than, okay, so it's a bad day at work, rather than pray, God, would you please solve all of these things? That's a fine prayer. But what if you started with, God, would you help me remember that my worth is not based on how well I'm doing here at work? When you go to pray for your kids, rather than just praying, God, help them figure this out, God, would you please rework these circumstances? What would, it look, what would it look like for you to pray, God? Help me to remember and help them to remember that our worth is not based on our performance. God, we want to rest in the performance of Jesus. Today, we get to remember this truth with a picture called the Lord's Supper. If you have um, one of these little cups, if you would take it out now. If you don't, uh, there are some on the back table. But if you would go ahead and open that up, we're going to take this together in just a minute. <clears throat> but what we're about to do together is a practice that Jesus has left us with. that is intended to help us remember this truth that we've talked about. This bread is a picture of Jesus's body. The cup is a picture of Jesus's blood. 
When we eat the bread and we drink the cup, we're reminding ourselves that it's, it's only by receiving Jesus that we can have fellowship at God's table. It's only by receiving Jesus that we can come and sit with God, that we can come and be acceptable to God. We are not eating our flesh and our blood. We're eating his because we need him. We need his blood, sweat, and tears in order to be acceptable to God, not ours. And so as we take this, would you remind yourself that you do not have to crucify yourself for your failures. There is a savior who has been crucified for you. His name is Jesus. The apostle Paul said, for I received from the Lord. Mm, I need to read this. I've got it. It's gonna be on the screen. So if I misquote it, you're gonna know. And then that's worse than if I just flip to it real quick. First Corinthians eleven twenty three. Here we go. For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, broke it and said, "This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me." In the same way, also he took the cup after supper and said. This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you stand with us? We're gonna sing this song, it's an old song. but it so perfectly captures the truth of Philippians chapter three. And so as we respond today, would you fix your heart on what Jesus has done? The infinite value that there is in knowing him and the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of his sufferings. Let's sing.